Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Welcome back, Zach. This was a big week in oral arguments, but orders first. Anything to note? Why, yes, there is. The court granted several new cases last week in what will likely be the last cases to be heard this term. The court agreed to hear City of Grants Pass, Oregon versus Johnson to decide whether the enforcement of generally applicable laws regulating camping on public property constitutes cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment, as the Ninth Circuit said it did. The court will also be deciding, in the case of Williams v. Washington, whether those who seek to bring Section 1983 actions in state court must first exhaust state administrative remedies before doing so. And the court will hear Starbucks Corp. v. McKinney to decide whether courts should use a more lenient standard for a preliminary injunction when the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, asks for it or whether the normal preliminary injunction standard should apply. Now, GC, I heard there was something fishy going on at oral arguments this week. Uh, what's all that about? <laughs> yes, fishy indeed. The biggest cases argued this week were Relentless and Loper Bright. These are two related cases that are fishy because they arise out of fishing regulations that both challenge Chevron deference. Now, that's a doctrine that comes from a case of the same name, holding that if a statute is silent or ambiguous, then an administrative agency can interpret the law in any reasonable way that it sees fit and that judges must defer to that interpretation, even if they decide that it's not the best interpretation. The doctrine has attracted a great deal of criticism, hasn't been used by the Supreme Court in many years, and is probably about to be put into the ground. To see why, let's consider the facts of these cases. So there is a federal law that gives the National Marine Fisheries Service the power to require fishermen, like the plaintiffs in these cases, to host federal monitors, fishing police, on their boats. The original statute that creates this legal regime has a gap in it, though. It doesn't say how the monitors are supposed to be paid. Until a few years ago, the government paid their salaries, but in 2018, the government decided that the fishermen themselves had to pay the salaries of their own monitors. Where did the power to make that order come from if it's not in the statute? In short, Chevron. The agency said that because the statute is silent about the monitor's salaries, under Chevron, the agency was therefore empowered to fill in that gap with any reasonable rule it wanted. The fishermen obviously balked, and now they're in front of a generally sympathetic high court arguing that the gaps can only be filled in by Congress and that it is the province of judges, not bureaucrats, to say what the law is. I'll spare you a blow-by-blow -blow breakdown of oral arguments uh, and leave you with my high-level sense that things went very well for the fishermen. If, however, you are looking for a blow-by-blow, -blow, our colleague Jack Fitzhenry has written one, which I've linked to in the show summary. Excellent. Well, everyone will probably recall from last week's episode that there was a property rights case that the court heard, Sheets versus El Dorado County. Well, this week, we have another important property rights case called DeVilliers versus Texas, which is being litigated by our friends over at the Institute for Justice. This case is also a takings case, but the question is whether someone can sue when the government takes their property, even if there is no statutory cause of action. Mr. DeVilliers brought this suit after the state of Texas flooded his ranch while building a highway. He sued, arguing that this flooding amounted to a taking of his property. Texas removed the case to federal court because his claim was a constitutional one, 
and then it managed to get the case dismissed because Congress hadn't created a statutory cause of action. Now, if this seems like a catch-22 to you, you're in good company. At oral argument, most of the justices seemed to agree that this was impermissible gamesmanship. If you recall from last week's interview with Josh Blackman, he argued that the Constitution is self-executing when it operates like a shield. That's essentially the same argument that Mr. de Villiers makes here. He doesn't need a statutory cause of action, he says, because the takings clause is self-executing as a shield against government abuse. Interesting point. Uh, what's the last case from this week, GC? Yeah, last up was a securities case, Macquarie versus Moab Partners, and it's going to decide whether a failure to make a required disclosure in an SEC disclosure amounts to a misleading statement such that it can give rise to a securities fraud case. Next up, my interview with Judge John Holcomb right after this. For over 35 years, the Heritage Foundation Job Bank has been helping conservatives at all professional levels find employment in key positions in Washington, D.C. and across the country. We can help you connect with positions in the administration, on Capitol Hill, in public policy organizations, and in the private sector. To learn more about the Heritage Foundation Job Bank, go to heritage.org job bank. We're pleased to be joined today by Judge John Holcomb, who currently serves as a United States District Judge on the United States District Court for the Central District of California. Judge Holcomb, welcome to the show. Zach, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you here today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, you have a very interesting background and had a very interesting career uh, before becoming a lawyer. Uh, so to start with, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your, uh, your pre-law. Uh, career. Sure. I saw you uh, attended MIT and received a degree in civil engineering, and then you served for several years as a naval officer. So I was curious, uh, where were you stationed and what type of work did you do in the Navy? Uh, yes. So um, I was, uh, I paid for school. I paid for MIT uh, with a Navy ROTC scholarship. And um, I chose to be a surface warfare officer. There are basically three ways you can go from ROTC, typically, uh, is aviation, submarines, or surface. And okay. uh, I really enjoyed being on surface ships as a midshipman. So I chose that route. And um, at that time, uh, I graduated in 84. So in late 83, early 84, when I was submitting my so-called dream sheet to the Navy about what I wanted to do, uh, the battleships were just being recommissioned. It was the Reagan administration, and John Lehman was the Secretary of the Navy, uh, trying to gear up for the 600-ship Navy. And um, I was intrigued by uh, by the recommissioning of the, battle the battleships, the old World War II battleships, the Iowa sure. class. So I, I requested to uh, to be stationed aboard a battleship, and I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the USS New Jersey. BB-62. So after some initial training, I reported aboard in January of 85 and served for two and a half years in a number of different positions on the ship. Excellent. As a junior officer, I was a, started out as a deck officer. Navy people will know what I'm talking about, but very briefly, <laughs> I'm, I was a deck officer and then I was the, uh, the OI division, Operations Intelligence Division officer for much of my tour. 
and finished up as the assistant missile officer and ultimately the engineering admin officer. So a little bit of everything. Well, fantastic. Now, for us non-Navy folks, uh, what is a deck officer? So literally, uh, deck officers take care of the, uh, well, they supervise, manage the sailors who take care of the uh, the main deck and the basic sailor positions, the anchor, yeah. uh, lines, uh, boat davits, uh, refueling at sea stations, that sort of thing. So I had, Battleship is a big ship and we had six sure. divisions, uh, six deck divisions. And so I had fourth division, which was the port side uh, uh, main deck and 01 level, including a boat davit and a refueling at sea station. So okay, pretty riveting stuff. Uh, it certainly sounds uh, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, obviously, you eventually decided to leave the Navy and uh, attend law school. And I'm curious, what led to your decision to, uh, to transition out of service and attend law school? It was a tough decision uh, to leave the Navy because I really enjoyed what I was doing. After my tour on the battleship, I spent two years uh, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, well, I, as a JCS intern on the Joint Staff uh, at the okay. Pentagon. So that was a very interesting tour. Um, during that tour, my uh, my wife and I decided, uh, well, I got married at the end of my sea tour before I started my shore tour at the Pentagon. Okay. And we decided we wanted to have a family and... Okay. Um, that I didn't want to be at sea for nine months to a year at a time on deployments. Sure. So that's what led to the decision to get out of the Navy. And then uh, um, one of my good friends on the ship had been the, uh, the legal officer. And I didn't know anything about law or law school. Nobody in my family had been a lawyer. Uh, but what what he did sounded very interesting. So in talking to him and then really reading the book, The Brethren, by uh, Bob Woodward, Sure. Um, about the what the seventy three seventy four thereabouts Supreme Court term, right? Law seemed fascinating to me, and I thought it would be fun to be a judge. So that's when I started thinking about law school. Okay. Um, ultimately, when I got out of the Navy, I, I started at Harvard Business School. My brother, older brother, had been at Harvard Business School when I was at MIT, so I knew a little bit about what that was about. And uh, so I started there. And while I was in business school, I applied to the law school and got in and ultimately did the JD MBA program. Uh, but as soon as I started law school, I knew that that was the career that I wanted mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately wanted to be a judge. Excellent. Uh, are there any special uh, memories or does anything from your time at Harvard uh, in particular stand out to you? When I was there, there was a uh, there was an article that came out in, I think, the Atlantic magazine, I could be wrong about that, called okay. uh, Beirut on the Charles. And it talked about how divisive the law school was at that time. Hmm. Um, a- as I understand it, it became less divisive for a time, and it may be back to being more divisive now, particularly with uh, uh, recent events. Right. One particular memory from law school is uh, Professor Elizabeth Warren was a visiting professor when I was uh, in my last year of law school and I took her bankruptcy class and she is she is an incredible teacher she was one of the best professors that I had and uh, really uh, enjoyed her teaching enjoyed bankruptcy 
And right. ultimately, she helped me get a job as a uh, a law clerk for one of her friends on the on the bankruptcy court in Chicago. Uh, okay. So one of my favorite memories is actually Elizabeth Warren as a professor. Oh, very interesting. Well, now I know you you mentioned it uh, after law school. You did clerk uh, for a, ju- a bankruptcy court judge on the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago. And was that uh, solely as a result uh, from taking uh, then Professor Warren's class or did you have uh, a particular interest in bankruptcy law? Um, I'm curious, how did that uh, that come about and what was that clerkship experience like? It, it was her class that um, made me decide to, uh, to to pursue a clerkship with a bankruptcy judge, and and at the time I was thinking about pursuing a career in bankruptcy law. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoyed it, and still do enjoy bankruptcy law. Um, judge Barliant, uh, terrific judge. Uh, he's retired. Well, he's not completely retired now. He's back in <laughs> private practice, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, wonderful man, wonderful judge and mentor. Um, I often tell my present clerks about my my experience as a law clerk for a bankruptcy judge. And one thing that, that I'm struck by is how much easier my clerkship was what, 30 years ago than what they're experiencing now. Right. The volume of the work that we have is, is it's got to be an order of magnitude, more uh, more work than what I ever had. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Spent, I, I could spend days or weeks poring over a, a complicated order. My law sure. clerks today have to churn them out really quickly. Well, I'm curious to, to know if you have any thoughts on why that may be the case. Why do you think the volume of cases is so much more today? Do you think it has to is it a function of you serving as a district court judge as opposed to being on the bankruptcy court, or is there another reason for the for the increased volume uh, today? Well, I, I think it's at least two things. One is yes, the district court versus the bankruptcy court. Bankruptcy court work seems to wax and wane uh, depending mm-hmm. upon the economy. Uh, sure. Right now, I think uh, my friends who are bankruptcy judges, it's a bit of a lull. They may hate me for saying this, but they, they are they're far less busy, I think, than I am. So part of it is just being a district judge. There is a sure. lot of work. There are a lot of cases. Another thing is uh, we need more district judges, I think, nationwide, but certainly in the Central District of California. Ours is, I think, the biggest district in the country, and we have 28 authorized district judges, but I know there have been studies that suggest we need I think I saw one that said we need at least 13 more uh, to even out the work. So it's a very, very busy docket. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Now, when you were clerking on the bankruptcy court, did your judge have any uh, traditions with his law clerks uh, that he maintained? He had an annual picnic that we would do. I was uh, maybe his fifth or sixth clerk. And bankruptcy judges, uh, at least at that time, well, they get two staff members, my judge, and at the time, most judges have a judicial assistant and one bankruptcy clerk. Sure. So there weren't, it wasn't a huge family, uh, as you see with many judges today that, that, sure. uh, that have a lot of, cl- have had a lot of clerks over time. But yes, so annual picnic was a lot of fun with families. Interesting. Now, I'm curious, I have to ask, do you have, have you carried over that tradition with your law clerks today, or do you have any traditions that you maintain uh, with your law clerks? 
Uh, we have uh, an annual holiday party. In fact, it's uh, this will date the 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 taping date, but it's going to be tomorrow. We're having an annual party. <laughs> Excellent. I, uh, I have a piano that we had at home uh, that uh, nobody was playing, so I moved it into chambers, and I'm hoping that we can use the piano at the annual party and have a lot of fun with. Christmas music and holiday music and that sort of thing. Oh, that'll be excellent. Excellent. Uh, do you have any particular uh, songs that you play on the, the <laughs> piano for uh, for the party or otherwise? Uh, I, I don't play. <laughs> it's probably a very good thing that I don't play. But uh, one of my present clerks is an excellent pianist. Um, and uh, so she plays. So uh, we were joking. Choosing law clerks in the future, we're going to have to choose at least one law clerk who uh, is a pianist. <laughs> Well, you heard it here first. It'll be an interesting part of the clerkship application process for your chambers. Uh, Excellent. Now, after you finished up your clerkship, you entered private practice where you practiced intellectual property law uh, for nearly two decades. I'm curious, how did you decide to practice IP law and what exactly does the practice of IP law entail on a day-to-day basis? When I... um... When I started private practice, um, I was at a firm that did uh, – it was a general practice firm, and I was doing general civil litigation and some bankruptcy. Uh, I was fortunate when I was an associate there that a, a, a bankruptcy practitioner joined as a partner, so I worked with her. In fact, she's now a bankruptcy judge here in the Central District, Sherry Bluebond. Mm-hmm. So I was doing uh, bankruptcy and general civil litigation. I changed firms and went over to a firm called Kenobi Martins uh, here in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kenobi Martins is a intellectual property um, boutique is probably the wrong word because it. Uh, when I left, I think we had about 250 lawyers, sure. uh, a specialty yeah. firm, an IP specialty firm. Okay. I think that they were interested in me because of my engineering background and sure. I was interested in them because uh, intellectual property seemed like a, 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 a it seemed like an interesting practice it seemed like it could be a lucrative practice sure. um, and as it turned out yes I spent uh, I guess 21 years at, at Kenobi Martins hmm. uh, enjoying enjoying all types of intellectual property law patents copyrights trademarks trade secrets and on a day-to-day basis, is it more, I guess, is it more of a transactional practice? Is there litigation involved? What does the uh, the practice of IP law uh, look like? At my firm, about half of the lawyers were patent prosecutors, meaning they were assisting clients in obtaining patents, negotiating with the patent office, um, and, and counseling on intellectual property assets. Sure. And the other half were litigators. And hmm. I, I was a part of that half, and uh, we were litigating all types of intellectual property cases. Um, as I said, anything from patents to copyrights to trademarks to trade sure. secrets. And my practice was, um, I, I used to call it a dirty, hairy practice. Every dirty <laughs> little case that came along that nobody else wanted, <laughs> I would be happy to work on. Uh, and there were some some of my partners, some of my colleagues were um, you know skilled at, for example, pharmaceutical cases and the cases. Sure. Uh, some um, 
would handle uh, uh, patent cases, um, software cases, that sort of thing. I would uh, I, I would handle whatever came along, and I really enjoyed the unusual cases. You know, the one-off trade secret and copyright mm-hmm. case, for example. Um, I, I thought that was a, a more fun, more fun type of practice. So that's what I did. Very good. Now, in September of 2019, President Trump announced his intent to nominate you to serve on the United States District Court for the Central District of California. Uh, how did that nomination come about? Well, I, I'm very fortunate and very blessed um, to have been nominated and ultimately to be confirmed. Uh, I I had decided back when I decided to go into the field of law that I wanted to be a judge someday. Sure. And uh, I I happened to be a Republican, and mm-hmm. uh, President Trump, of course, won the uh, the election 2016, and it was it was about April 2017. I was thinking about the last the last part of my legal career. And what I what I wanted to do, and it occurred to me, hey, this is my chance to apply to be a uh, a district judge, something I've always wanted to do. Uh, there's the right uh, there's a Republican administration in sure. place that may be interested in a Republican here in Southern California. So, um, wrote letters and tried to uh, tried to get recognized uh, by by the people at the administration, uh, White House Counsel's Office and DOJ, who were involved with vetting judges. And that that took a long time to get get noticed. But um, ultimately, uh, I I stuck with it and and, uh, continued to pester them. And uh, (laughs) finally, it it worked out. It worked out for me. I don't know if it worked out for them. That remains to be seen. (laughs) And then uh, the the other path for district judges is, uh, of course, you need the home state senator's right. approval through the blue slip process. So at the time, it was uh, the late Senator Feinstein and then Senator Harris. And each of them had an application process. So I figured, uh, filled out applications for each of them and, uh, and ultimately went through the uh, interview processes with uh, each of their committees mm-hmm. and... Um, the joke here in Southern California, well, in California generally, during the Trump administration and the, uh, as I said, then Senator Senators Harris and Feinstein, the joke was you had to be at the bottom of everybody's list. You had to be you had to be on everybody's list, but if you were at the top of anybody's list, it, it may be problematic for the other side. So I'm proud to say I was at the, the bottom of everybody's list, and it fortunately, it worked out for me. Well, Very fortunate. It, it, well, it certainly did. And I'm curious, the uh, the confirmation process itself in terms of the getting a hearing in front of the Judiciary Committee and that sort of thing, what was that process like? It's, it's a very difficult process, uh, particularly at that time with the Trump administration and, and uh, Senators Feinstein and Harris. Um, really opposite, if I may say it, opposite ends of the uh, political spectrum. Sure. And... Um, Difficult to get everybody's buy-in on particular candidates, so it was it was a roller coaster. It was up and down. Um, I was actually told at one point, "Gee, thanks for applying, but uh, we're going to head in a different direction." And then <laughs> months later, something happened, and uh, I got a call saying, "Are you still interested?" 
Okay. Um, so it's so many ups and downs. And, and even after I got the, uh, the call in September of 2019 from, from, uh, White House Counsel's office saying the president intends to nominate you. That was a that was a very good day. Even then, I had to wait until June of the next year, June of 2020, for a, uh, a hearing in the Judiciary Committee. Sure. Um, it, and even then, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a done deal until until the the vote on the Senate floor. I have colleagues that I went through the. Uh, confirmation process, went through the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing with. One of the five of us uh, made it through the committee, was voted uh, voted out of committee onto the floor of the Senate, and then uh, she never got a vote. Uh, mm-hmm. Just uh, then, uh, well, Senator McConnell, then uh, the Senate Majority Leader, just ran out of time to sure. get everybody through. So... Uh, yeah, incredible ups and downs. It's a very, very difficult process. Sure. And I'm always curious, too, particularly for lawyers in private practice, was it difficult to keep your practice going while you were in limbo, essentially waiting on the, the nomination to, to go through? Short answer is yes. Now, in my circumstance, I had retired from my firm mm. at the end of 2018 um, naively thinking that um, my judicial application would be successful. Uh, I was pursuing that path, and I was also um, pursuing a, a, a general counsel job with, uh, with a, a spinoff from Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was, was going to be the CEO of that company, and I was going to join him as general counsel if the, uh, if the judicial application was unsuccessful. As it turned out, neither of them hit very quickly. Uh, I went almost the entire year of 2019 uh, kind of in limbo. So okay. the short answer to your question is yes. And friends of mine who have uh, gone from private practice to the bench or tried to go to the bench have commented to me that, yes, it uh, it can kill your practice. Who wants to hire a lawyer right. to represent them in a in a big litigation, a big case, if that lawyer is – imminently going to leave and be appointed to the bench. So uh, very difficult. I I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, fortunately, you did make it through. You were confirmed to the bench. And so I'm curious, Judge, uh, what what have you enjoyed the most uh, about being a judge uh, as opposed to being an an advocate? This is the best job ever. (laughs) I I just love it. I love every minute of it. I, I have always enjoyed being in court as a as an IP practitioner. Not many IP cases actually go to trial, so sure. uh, time in trial is scarce. Plenty of hearings, Markman hearings, and and that sort of thing, but uh, not many trials. So now, what uh, what is a Markman hearing uh, for those of us unfamiliar with IP law? Yes. Um, so in nineteen eighty five or nineteen eighty six, the Supreme Court. Uh, decided the Markman decision. Markman against, I want to say, West Westview Instruments, something like that. Okay. It's all. It's called the Markman case. And in Markman, the Supreme Court decided that issues of claim construction are issues of law to be decided by the judge. Okay. So patents have claims. Each each claim is a separate invention. If mm-hmm. if you've ever looked at a patent. 
you'll have the uh, the cover page, and then you'll have several pages of figures, then you'll have a bunch of text, and then at the very back you'll have numbered claims, one through whatever. Each of sure. those numbered claims is a is a claim is a separate invention. Those claims spell out in in English in in uh, in text what the invention is. Describe the invention. Okay. That text sometimes needs to be construed, needs to be explained um, so that a judge and jurors and others can understand precisely what it is that is claimed. Sure. As an example, say the claim uses the word adjacent. You know, okay. this, in this, in this uh, invention, element A is adjacent to element B. Okay, well, that's interesting. What does adjacent mean? Does it mean mm-hmm. touching? Does it mean they're very, very close together, A and B? Does it mean A and B are not close together, but there's simply nothing, no item of structure in between A and B? Adjacent could mean any of those things, and the uh, the Q's device may you know may not be touching, uh, and so the defendant says, well, adjacent means touching, and I don't touch, so I don't infringe, so no liability. And the patentee says, "Well, well, no. Adjacent doesn't have to mean touching. It can mean, uh, you know, far, far away, as long as there's nothing in between." So the judge in Markman, the Supreme Court said, the judge has to decide, has to construe adjacent, has to construe any limitations. Limitations, a, a word or group of words in a claim is called a limitation because it's limiting what it is that has been sure. described and claimed as the invention. The judge has to uh, explain, construe the limitations. And uh, when we say Markman hearing, that's the process of, of doing that claim construction. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, since you've taken the bench, is there anything you uh, – any aspects of the job that you don't enjoy <laughs> as much as others? <laughs> or anything unsurprising that you've confronted uh, or a little bit surprising that you've confronted since taking the bench? In terms of not much that I don't enjoy, the volume, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, is really high. I would love to have more time with each case, but it's just a matter of of getting the work done and uh, sure. and, and working through all of the cases that I have. So sure. that's to the extent that if there's something I don't like, it's the it's the extreme volume. Uh, in terms of being surprised, you know, coming from a background of uh, bankruptcy and intellectual property, that's that's a that's a good part of federal jurisdiction, but it's certainly not all of it. Sure. Um, I was uh, when I took this job, I was concerned about all of the areas of law that I know very little about or nothing about, like mm-hmm. criminal law, uh, class actions, uh, uh, civil rights cases. Sure. But to my, in terms of surprise, to my surprise, I really like working on those cases, learning new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, civil rights cases in particular, I got to be careful how I say this because often the, the circumstances of the case are tragic. Sure. But in terms of the, um, the, the law that's involved, it, it can be fascinating and obviously very important to the participants, the parties in the case. So. Sure. I enjoy working on civil rights cases, which surprises me. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, Judge Holcomb, I have a final question. We ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. 
if you could have a conversation with any justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? I've uh, I've probably heard dozens or maybe a hundred of your podcasts <laughs> over the years. I really enjoyed them. Well, thank them. you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've so I've thought about this uh, question uh, a lot. It, it would be um, Justice Robert Jackson. Justice hmm. Jackson is from Jamestown, New York, originally, which is just across the Pennsylvania border from the little town that I grew up in, Smithport, Pennsylvania. Okay. And um, if I if I could talk to him, I would I would talk to him about being from that part of the country and how his background in little Jamestown, New York influenced his, his fantastic career mm. as a, um, well, he did just, he did so many things working in the right. FDR administration and serving as attorney general. And then obviously uh, associate justice on the Supreme court. I would love to speak to him about, about his time in Jamestown and, and how that formed who he became. Very interesting. Well, Judge Holcomb, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We'd love to have you back again in the future. Well, thank you very much. I, I've enjoyed it, and I, I love the show. All right, Zach. So for trivia this week, the takings clause cases this week and last got me thinking about how important property rights are in the Constitution. So I reread a wonderful old article by our colleague Paul Larkin called The Original Understanding of Property in the Constitution, and from that uh, derived today's trivia. So it'll be about your historical knowledge today. Are you ready? Well, I read that article a while ago, uh, so let's see how good my long-term <laughs> memory is. Uh, hit me with what you got. All right. Which framer famously said, and I quote, property must be secured or liberty cannot exist? Well, that was John Adams. Yes, indeed. Well done. So that famous line uh, was echoed, of course, by numerous framers and repeated in one form or another throughout founding era documents. So in Federalist 54, for example, Madison wrote that, and I quote, government is instituted no less for the protection of property than the persons of individuals. Given the centrality of this idea to the founding, how often do you think that either of those quotes has been cited by the Supreme Court? Just ballpark. <laughs> well, given the tenor of the question, uh, I'm going to say either not a lot or it's a trick question and they haven't been cited at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess you know me a little too well. So, <laughs> the, uh, not the, today, GC. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> the famous Adams quote uh, has actually only been cited twice and only very recently, first by Justice Thomas in his dissenting opinion in Carpenter versus United States, and once more by the majority, Chief Justice Roberts writing in Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, the Madison quote has never been cited. Mm. It's too bad. All right. Well done. Uh, I don't know that I should give you credit for knowing the answer so much as knowing your opponent in <laughs> trivia, but uh, either way, More than you half get the battle. One. More than half the battle here. <laughs> number three. So the framers believe that the right to property was a natural right. That is a right that comes as the Declaration of Independence puts it from the laws of nature and of nature's God and was not given to you by the government. Over the years, however, the Supreme Court abandoned this view, uh, holding that property rights are given to you by the government which means, of course, that they can be taken by the government. In what 1972 case involving academic tenure did the court announce its property as government grant view? 
writing, and I quote, property interests, of course, are not created by the Constitution, but by existing rules that stem from an independent source such as state law. Hmm. Now, this one's a little tougher. I don't know the exact case, GC, but again, you know, I think there were a lot of Board of Regents versus someone uh, cases at the time. <laughs> so that's uh, that's my half-hearted answer. That is half one. right, Zach. You've got half the question. It's, it's Board of Regents versus Roth. More than I usually get, so I'll take it. <laughs> the uh, author of that opinion was Justice Potter Stewart, totally unrelated to property rights. But, of course, no lawyer can see the name Potter Stewart without saying what? <laughs> is this his uh, famous quote about uh, pornography? Yes, which is? Uh, uh, well, I know it when I see it, uh, <laughs> quoting Justice Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Poor Justice Stewart. He's probably most famous for failing to articulate a legal definition of obscenity in Jacobellis versus Ohio and in apparent frustration writing, but I know it when I see it. So, so poor Stewart, he, later in life, he, he came to regret writing that. He knew that it was the only thing he was going to be remembered for, and he said, <laughs> that line is going to be on my tombstone. Well, and I think, GC, didn't I, uh, if I remember correctly, didn't the justices at one point actually hold screenings in the Supreme Court trying to decide whether certain films were obscene or whether they were permissible and protected by the First Amendment? Yes. could I, I can't even imagine how awkward that was. Yeah, I, I can say, uh, you know, Justice Stewart uh, deserves a lot of the grief uh, he received <laughs> <laughs> for writing that. All right. Last question. Back to property. The Chief Justice's majority opinion in Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid is rightly viewed as something of a recommitment by the court to protect property rights as the framers intended that they should be protected. But a notable step in that direction was made in a 1994 case where the majority said that the Constitution's protection for property rights should not, and I quote, be relegated to the status of a poor relation to other rights. That particular phrase has been uh, parroted and reiterated in scholarship and other judicial opinions since then. Do you know which opinion that was from? And as a hint, we mentioned it last week when we discussed Sheets versus El Dorado County. Well, Again, I'll give a, a half a half answer, GC. Uh, this is either going to be the Nolan or Dolan case, I suspect, uh, because I know that the Nolan-Dolan test uh, was one of the uh, major issues in the Sheets versus El Dorado uh, case. Yes, that's exactly right. It, it was Dolan. Of, of the two, it was Dolan versus City of Tigard. Mm. Uh, bonus points if you can name the justice who wrote that majority opinion. Let's just end on a high note, GC. Uh, no, need to, no need to ask the follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's a nice way of saying, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, it was uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who in 1994 was probably the only justice on the court who would be willing to write something like that. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, very interesting well, trivia today, GC. Thanks, Zach. And well done. Well, Those thank were hard. you. That's all we have for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at SCOTUS101, and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.